Good morning, church family. Thanks for making room for us in your living room. I want to take you on a nostalgic journey this morning back to mine, my living room, growing up in the 1970s, the hippest decade. And don't any of you young hipsters go bringing it back, not even for fun. But here was our living room, shag carpet in the middle, earth-toned upholstery on the furniture, striped, just the way the 1970s could to cultivate an appearance. Television in one corner, big console cabinet, and then one whole row, one long wall of bookcases. Probably the beginning, for me, of a lifelong love affair with bookcases. And, and I used to go up and down those bookcases, some of the standard fare that you'd expect in a 1970s bookshelf, books by Pierre Burton and others. Uh, of course, all of my father's high school science textbooks, he was a teacher that had the answer keys in the back, something that we loved as kids growing up, having to study the same curriculum. And then one slim little volume that I guess I'll admit in retrospect to perusing quite a bit, it was 101 Best Loved Poems. And I would open that up, and sometimes I would transcribe a few of them as I was practicing calligraphy in my room. One of the ones that I recall started like this. It said, tell me not in mournful numbers that life is but an empty dream, for the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. For life is real, and life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken to the soul. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I tell you the rest of the poem, but I don't have the book anymore. My favorite line in the poem, though, was that one that says, things are not what they seem. Feels like there's a lot of magic in that idea because hope, too, is rooted in what we do not see. Over the course of these weeks, we're learning together how to cultivate hope. And each week as we gather, we're praying together those words that Paul left us in Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Paul doesn't say, may your circumstances fill you with hope. Because if you focus just on circumstances, things may not look hopeful, but things are not always what they seem. Some people will wait and wait forever for their circumstances to change and for that to bring them hope. And then there are other people who choose to bring hope into their circumstances. And there's a key difference between the two, isn't there? There's a story in the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 13, where Moses sends out scouts into the promised land, and they bring back reports, and they bring back recommendations based on what they've seen. Ten of those scouts return, and they say, we can't go forward. We can't do it. The risk is too great. We're too weak. The odds are against us. It's too dangerous. But two of them came back, and their report went like this. 
We can't go backwards. The opportunity is too great. God is too strong. Things are not what they seem. Now, to be clear, all of the scouts were surveying the same situation. They faced exactly the same dangers, and they held in front of them exactly the same opportunities. Two of them were filled with hope. Ten of them had none whatsoever. The two who were hope-filled, you probably know them, or you know their names, Joshua and Caleb. They became heroes, and, and to this day, millennia later, parents all around the world named their sons Joshua and Caleb, two of the most profit, uh, prof, uh, promising and endearing and popular baby names year after year after year. On the other hand, honestly, even if you are a Bible person, can you name any of the 10 other hopeless guys? They're there in the Bible, given by name. I'll tell you the names. See if you can think of any parents who use any of these names. Egal, Gadi, Palti, Sather, Gadiel, Amiel, Hosea, Geuel, Nabi, and my favorite, Shamua. Think about naming your little baby Sether. Hey, Sether, come here. Or, or better still, Shamua. Doesn't Shamua sound like a name that should be given to a killer whale? <laughs> now, I don't think that you could look at a little baby and love it and not be filled with hope for it. In fact, hope is one of those names that we give to babies. Nobody names their child despair. Every child I think, has a natural streak of hope that runs through them. We're born that way. We're convinced that we will walk. And even though we fall a thousand times, something deep within that inside of us says, get up, keep trying, and we do. And then, and then one day, one day it happens. But for some people, along the line, it happens someday that hope dies. And along with it, the conviction that life matters, that I'm going to walk, that this fall is not fatal, that God says, as he does in Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Somewhere along the line, that vision fades and hope dies. And when hope dies, Something inside of us dies along with it. Of course, as Rochelle mentioned at the beginning of our service, this season can be a hope killer. And it has been for many people in our families and in our communities. You've lost your job or you've lost your home. You've lost a portion of your health. You've all lost something of your freedom. Some of you have lost something even more dear. You've stood over a grave and said goodbye to a loved one. And whatever the reason, just the combination of all those circumstances has seen hope diminish and resentment rise. And what is it we do to cope? Some of us, you know, we're burned out, we're, we're stressed out, drinking too much, demotivated, discouraged. We wonder... How do we put it all back together again? How do we build up hope? And if that's something that you resonate in any way, 
If it resonates with you, I'm just, I'm glad that you've tuned in for these few moments for this message. We're going to spend this morning looking at the life of a man named Elijah. Elijah, who suffered a collapse, a catastrophic failure of hope in his life. For him, it was remarkably sudden and it was incredibly deep. But we also catch Elijah on the rebound as hope is reborn in him. And as we read his story, we we begin to feel that that can be me, that can be you, that can be our story. And as we prepare to turn to the story of Elijah, I just want to say a word or two again, particularly for those of you who have joined us over these past few weeks and months, a word about how to read and how to study the stories of the Bible before we get into this. Contrary, contrary to a lot of popular opinion, the stories in the Bible are not like Aesop's fables. The hero of the Bible is God. And God interacts with real people, flawed, often morally ambiguous human beings like you and me. And and when we read their stories, we're not usually reading them as stories about virtue and how to learn and cultivate virtue based on their example. We're learning about how life with God is gradually revealed to human beings in the world. And that's very true of this story. We meet Elijah. Elijah's a prophet, a very human guy. In 1 Kings, and you might want to flip in your Bible if you have it or turn on your device. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we find Elijah at the height of his ministry, seriously overachieving. Maybe you know the story. He courageously confronts the 450 idolatrous prophets of Baal. He does so single-handedly. He builds the altar. He digs the trenches. He hauls in the wood. He butchers the bull. He prays down fire from heaven. He defeats the prophet, all at great risk to his own life. And then, in the same chapter, under his inspired preaching, multitudes of previously resistant Israelites, they fall to the ground, they worship again at the feet of the one true God. Elijah prophecies to his mortal enemy, a wicked king named Ahab, that there would be an end to years of drought. And then he climbs from the bottom of the Kishon Valley up to the top of Mount Carmel and prays for rain And it comes, a deluge. And then Elijah tells the king to ride his chariot out to Jezreel, about 15 miles away. And the king does. But we're told at the same time, Elijah, in a burst of energy, tucks his cloak into his belt and runs ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The man, he literally outruns a chariot. I mean, here's a man who cannot be stopped. Like, I don't know, Captain America, Black Panther, Spider-Man, all all rolled into one. But then comes chapter 19. Wicked King Ahab tells his wicked wife Jezebel about all these amazing triumphs of Elijah's ministry. And she is so put off by it. She sends a messenger to Elijah, and this is what she says. This is 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 2. This is Jezebel says, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I don't make your life like all those dead prophets of Baal. Hmm. 
Now, all those of us who've just been following Elijah's story, we've just read through chapter 18, we know that the response to this is going to be amazing. I mean, Elijah has faced a list of enemies much tougher than this, and he's dismissed them literally with a wave of his hand. And what's more, this isn't even a real problem, or it doesn't feel like it. When Jezebel says, if by this time tomorrow I don't take your life, doesn't that feel kind of like, I don't know, just a threat formula? kind of an empty threat. I mean, if she's being literal, she would have sent soldiers to arrest him on the spot. But Elijah's a national hero, and she knows it. And so this is is just intimidation language. If you keep this up, you're going to hear from my lawyers, that kind of thing. And what's more, Elijah knows the power of God. If you've read the Bible closely, an Old Testament scholar, a man named Dale Hubbard, talks about this. The miracles in the Bible they're not evenly distributed throughout. They cluster in certain areas, and they certainly clustered around the ministry of Elijah. In fact, if you look for the three areas, you'll find them in three different places for three different reasons. The first is around the time of Moses, when the people of God are being formed, and the miraculous, of power, the miraculous power of God is on full display. Another time is during the days of Jesus himself that great revelation of who God is, and around the time that the church is being formed. Again, a miraculous revelation of God. But the third time, the third time is this, during the days of Elijah. Elijah and later later his protege, Elijah. A time when, when Israel is being challenged prophetically to come out of idolatry, to live true to her heritage, to worship and, and hold up values of justice and holiness and truth. And Elijah is the man. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Elijah prays away drought, outruns chariots. He's fed by the ravens. He raises the dead. He makes kings and he breaks kings. And so we're hearing Elijah being threatened by Jezebel, and we just think, Jezebel, you have sadly missed or underestimated Elijah if you think that you can intimidate him with a bunch of puny threats. Right, Elijah? Right, Elijah? 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 Huh. It seems Elijah has nowhere to be found. Why is that? The Bible says he was running for his life. And we know he was a pretty fast runner. He hits the southern border town of Beersheba. That's where you go if you're trying to escape Israel. It's like crossing the Rio Grande in Texas. Elijah leaves his servant there, and and then he disappears into the wilderness. That idea of dismissing your servant is a way of saying, I'm leaving it all behind. The job, the ministry, the title, the responsibility. He terminates his staff. Crossing the border, symbolic to leaving the people of God behind. The people he'd been called to serve. Then he goes deep, deep into the Negev desert. And we're told that when he came to a broom tree, he sat down underneath it, and he prayed that he might die. And look at the words, 1 Kings 19, verse 4. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Turns out I'm no better than my ancestors. 
people who read this story and who write about it, they wonder how could the, the triumphant, death-defying superhero Elijah of chapter 18 turn into this despondent, hopeless figure in chapter 19? How does Joshua turn into Shamua in the space of one chapter? Sometimes I wonder, and I'm, I'm not the first, if in some way Elijah wasn't just a little bit bipolar. If he'd walked into a modern-day clinic and was examined, if we wouldn't see signs of manic activity in chapter 18, risky behavior, check. Excess energy, check, check. Confrontational, certainly, check. Reduced sense of fear, check. But then in chapter 19, when you begin to think about the diagnostic criteria for depression, diminished interest in activity, check. Fatigue, loss of energy, check, check. Depressed affect, feelings of worthlessness, thoughts of suicide, check, check, check. Change in appetite, a change in sleep habits, check, check. And of course, thousands of years ago, those kind of categories, psychiatric categories, didn't exist. So I'm not trying to read them into the story, but, but during this month and during this time of year, let's talk month and during the blue months of the year, maybe it's worth mentioning at least because it resonates with some of you or maybe with you who suffer with bipolar disorder or with compulsive disorder, with clinical levels of depression or anxiety or autism or addiction, and you think that, that God could never use you. That is a lie. It's just, it's the most destructive of lies. Look at the way he used Elijah. And again, the Bible is not a book about paragons of moral virtue. And it's not about mental and emotional health. It's about God. And it's about the ways that God works in strange ways with even stranger people. And so I want to say this to you today. If you find yourself desperate and alone and dealing with those brooding feelings of despair, if you find yourself contemplating a life that's so miserable that the thought of release, of ending it all, is more palatable than the thought of going on. I hope that, that you can find it in you to come out of the shame and ask just in the gentlest way possible for prayer and help right now. Whatever else we aspire to be, we want to be the safest of places for people to bring the realest of worries. This is real hope for the real world. God doesn't want you to be in despair. And as hard as it is to hear, there is a purpose for your life. It's that truth that, that Elijah was about to discover again. But before we discover it, Again, let me encourage you, if you find yourself in whatever way at the bottom, to whisper a word to somebody. You can do it to somebody in the room with you. You can, 
You can do it via email or chat or text. If you want to send it to the church confidentially, we will respond. You are not alone. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at a few of the hope killers that I think really flipped the switch for Elijah. What is it that happened between chapter 18 and chapter 19 that choked out his hope, at least for a little while? And what is it that his therapist, Dr. God, was able to do to get him through? And, and maybe that will help you. Maybe that will help us all as we learn to become students of hope as we make our way through these days in the desert. Here's the first of the the great hope killers. Fatigue. I mean, I think for sure, one of the major hope killers for Elijah was just plain exhaustion. I know that doesn't sound terribly spiritual, but fatigue is a hope killer. Imagine going through everything that Elijah did in chapter 18. Remember, he's a real guy. After confronting the whole nation of Israel, after giving one of the boldest speeches in the Bible, after taking on 450 false idolatrous prophets and single-handedly constructing an altar and butchering the bull and praying down help from heaven and lecturing a wicked king speaking to power and climbing Mount Carmel, and praying down rain that ends a drought, and then outrunning a horse and chariot for 15 miles, maybe, just maybe, he needed a breather. I have a feeling that, that his adrenaline levels for those days must have been just off the charts. But he was still a guy. He wasn't Superman. And I say this to some of you. You're just a guy. You're just a woman. You're just a man. You're just an ordinary person. And so Elijah slumps back against the broom tree and he pours out this desperate prayer. I am done, he says. I've had enough. Lord, you can take me now. But let's look what God does next. This is in chapter 19 still, in verse 5. Look what God does. And then as Elijah lay down under the bush, he fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some, this is my word, cake. <laughs> you ever heard of angel food cake? That's, that's where it started. I mean, literally, an angel gave him food. In fact, Elijah took another nap after he ate. The angel gave him more cake. So if you'd like a summary of God's first great intervention in Elijah's life, here it is. Elijah was spent. He says, God, I'm so overwhelmed I want to die. God's answer is, here's some food. Why don't you take a nap? And so Elijah slept and ate. And eventually he decided that things maybe weren't quite so bad. Maybe the moral of the story is that we should never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack, for things are not what they seem. Part of it was that Elijah was just exhausted. You ever get that way? 
not just tired, but flat out exhausted. It's amazing, you know. A, a few months ago, tons and tons of people had never heard of Zoom. Now one of the hottest topics out there, almost a full year into this pandemic, is Zoom fatigue. They just ran an article in Harvard Business Review. It was picked up in National Geographic. It turns out that if you stare at another person minute by minute, hour by hour, it takes a huge toll. We are not used to that. It's exhausting. Plus, you have to look at your own self up in the little corner in a box. And it turns out that looking at your wrinkled self, looking at you being a lot worse than you imagined yourself being, is exhausting. Now listen, I understand that that Elijah is not you. He doesn't have your stamina. He doesn't have your drive. Your ability to thrive on junk food or go without regular sleep or stay up all night watching whatever. And after all, Elijah was just some world-changing, king-challenging, nation-forming, history-altering prophet. He's not up to your speed. I get it. But you might consider this, that you will never reach consistent spiritual renewal if you live in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. Let me say that again. You will never reach consistent spiritual renewal in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. You are an inhabitant of and you live at the mercy of your body. Maybe this is just a good season to address that. People wonder, I mean, I can't drive, I'm not commuting, I can't travel, I can't shop, I can't eat out, I'm not going to the gym, what should I do? Oh, you could rest. You could sleep more regularly. You could eat healthy. You could cut down on the caffeine or the alcohol if they're getting in the way. You could take long walks, maybe with a friend or maybe just with our friend Jesus. Did you ever notice this? That sometimes the difference between the confident hope of Joshua and the defeated spirit of Shemua is just a good night's sleep. Sometimes, based on the Bible, the most spiritual thing that you can do is just take a nap. Maybe that's really why you, turned in, you tuned in today. And maybe, if nothing else, you take that from today's message. But there is another hope killer. Fatigue is one. Another is no stranger to any of us. Isolation. When God finally does speak to Elijah after some time and after the whole nap, snack thing... He asks Elijah this question. This is 1 Kings 19, verse 9. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And you could underline the little word here if you want. Because if you're following along in the Bible, you know that's a question that has different levels of meaning. It's a question of physical location. Elijah, your calling is back there. What are you doing here? Your mission is there. Why are you here? Going deeper, it's also a question about spiritual condition. How did I get here? How did the confident, faith-filled prophet of God become this shell of what he once was, this despairing, hopeless, suicidal runaway? How did I get here? 
And God knows every one of us. And at different points in our life, that question comes. And in different ways, symbolically, or maybe even realistically, we find ourselves sitting underneath a tree in the desert, saying, how did I get here? Elijah responds to God's question. 1 Kings 19 and verse 10. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I've been very zealous. I'm the only one left. Look how I'm being treated. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll go eat worms. I don't know about you, but one of the things I'm discovering about myself, particularly in this season, is that I have a tremendous capacity for self-pity. Sometimes it's almost like a spiritual gift. It's such a miserable experience. Somebody once called self-pity like cold comfort. And man, is that true? I mean, there is comfort in it. That's why we go to it. But it's cold comfort. And it breeds isolation. And it just distorts my perspective. It makes everything in life look all the more hopeless. One of the fascinating things in chapter 18 is that Elijah is aware, deeply aware, that there are scores of other faithful prophets who love and serve the God of Israel, whose lives are also at risk. But now here he is, one chapter later, he forgets about all of them and says, I'm alone. Squeak, squeak, squeak. (laughs) God's response is so gracious. He says in, in chapter 19, verse 11, It says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord himself is about to pass by. And then what's given to Elijah are all the elements that are associated in the Bible with what is called a theophany. The tangible manifestation of the presence and the glory of God. A mighty wind, a great earthquake, a powerful fire, and then a phrase that is just very hard to translate. A still, small voice, or maybe a gentle breeze, or maybe in some translations, even just a really pregnant silence. And it may be in those moments that God was holding his hand saying, hey, do you know what this is? No. The world's smallest violin. Squeak, squeak, squeak. God goes on and asks him the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And we wait to see. I mean, how would Elijah be changed? How would he be moved and challenged and inspired and encouraged by witnessing the actual presence of God? How different will his response be now from verse 10? And he speaks in verse 14. Maybe as you look through your Bible, it's going to look like like a typo, like like they inadvertently copied the same block of text because it's exactly the same thing. 
I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your people to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Hasn't changed at all. Not a word. I mean, that powerful spiritual experience was apparently utterly wasted on this man. But God is not done. God goes on to tell Elijah that there are thousands of others ready to stand there with them. He says, Elijah, you're a part of something much bigger than you know. Things are not the way that they seem. There are people around you who can inspire you and encourage you and model hope for you. One of the most tangible things that happens is that God has Elijah go seek out another man. A man named Elisha, who's going to become his student. But more than that, he'll become his partner. And more than that, he'll become a friend. And even more than that, he'll become like a son. Elisha will learn to call him Elijah, my father. Elijah, you are so not alone. Your enemy is not nearly so strong as you think. And Israel is not so faithless faithless and And God is not so distant. Here's the point. Hope is never just a solo activity. Hope is a team sport. Isolation will diminish hope, but connection will multiply it. That's probably the biggest reason why you hear us week by week Talk about the importance here at MCBC of getting everybody connected in one of these little life groups, one of these small groups. One of the things I love about this season is that thanks to God and the wonders of technology, which is also a gift from God, anybody anywhere can be part of one of those little groups. That's one of the ways, one of the profound ways that we're kept from isolation. It's where we remind each other that God is still at work. Small groups help us to find Jesus in our ordinary lives. Small groups help us to to see the ways that Jesus is forming us in our lives. From that day under the broom tree onward, every time Elijah would look at his partner and surrogate son, Elisha, it would be a reminder to him that that God's work would go on. I am not alone. That my efforts are not in vain. And that there is hope. Maybe at your small group meeting this week, those of you who are meeting, you might want to spend a minute and just ask, hey, what are you hoping for? I mean, today, right now, be concrete. What are your hopes? And then pray for a few minutes in ways that will help each other to keep hope alive. If you want to, you can, you can put that in the chat right now. I mean, we love all the smiley emoticons, but, but here's another option. Just say, I have a hope. I have a hope. Here's what it is. Fill up the chat with good news of the things that you're hoping for. Keep hope alive. And all of this brings us to the last great hope killer. And that's worry. I mean, fatigue for sure, isolation for sure, but especially worry. 
It's impossible to worry and to be hopeful, isn't it? I mean, that's what we think, right? I mean, isn't worry actually the trigger for the loss of hope in this story? Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. I've got good news and I've got bad news on this one. The good news is that, in fact, hope can exist right alongside worry. But here's the bad news. In some ways, hope only ever exists alongside worry. Sometimes people think that hope means that they get to live their life free of any anxiety or concern, that it's all just light and feathers. They can finally have a worry-free, pleasant little life. And actually, real hope, sober hope, works exactly the other way. Real hope persists and flourishes in the face of all the odds and all the worries and all the anxieties that the world throws up in your face. Lewis Smeads writes about a study of World War II airmen and how they coped with fear because you know the mortality rate for airmen during the Second World War was abysmally high. And many of them said they overcame fear by simply giving up on hope. They accepted the fact that they were dead already. They believed that one of those times when they were flying out on a mission, they were simply going to die and they would not come back. And they just resigned themselves to that fate. But then a strange thing began to happen. As their mission count went up, and as the ticker went by and they realized they had only a few missions left before they were eligible to return home, as they approached the finish line, they started to believe that they just might survive. They began to care again. They began to hope. And the minute they started hoping again, all of the worries came back. Hope is not fatalism. We hope for what we don't yet have. That means in some ways, hope and worry are siblings in the same way that faith and doubt are always siblings. Great French writer, a man named Jacques Ellul, said that the person plunged into doubt is not the unbeliever, but the person who has no other hope but hope. Unbelievers don't have to doubt. Believers doubt precisely because we live by faith. And as long as we live by faith and hope, we will also know doubt and fear. As long as you have something to hope for, you also have something to be concerned about. I mean, that's, that's good news, but it's hard news. We live there in the real world. But if there is a difference between hope in general and hope in Christ, it's this. Our hope is not just in hope. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not that we're strong enough, vital enough, that we're good enough. Our hope is that God is strong enough and vital enough and good enough. Let's have one last glimpse at the story of Elijah. Chapter 19, verse 15, God tells Elijah to take action. The Lord says to him, Elijah, go back. Go back the way you came. 
Hope you had a nice trip. I hope the nap and the snack were good. I hope you enjoyed the show up on the mountain. Now go back. And he gives Elijah a new assignment. And he gives him new leaders to anoint because he's not alone. He gives him new words to speak. He gives him colleagues to recognize. And what's interesting in all of this is that the writer tells us absolutely nothing about how Elijah feels. We got an earful earlier about fear and his escape and his aloneness and his feelings of failure and all the self-pity, his desire to die. But now that God has given him rest and food and quiet and a month of recovery and a divine revelation and probing questions and a new direction, we get very little insight into what's going on in his life. I mean, is Elijah all charged up again? Is he confident? Is he hopeful? Is he afraid? The Bible doesn't say. What we know is what he did. And what he did was what God asked him to do. But I'll tell you my guess. And it's just a guess. It's hard sometimes not to look at all the white space between the words and imagine what's going on. But my guess is, for the remainder of Elijah's life, he had to deal with hope and to manage his fear. He would choose hope, and he would manage fear. And we know what he did. What he did was to obey God, to go back down the mountain and take courageous action. What he did was to say, I guess I won't just retire to the desert where things will be safe. I I won't just withdraw up the side of a mountain and make my life manageable. Action is a powerful thing. It's much easier to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. When you act like a hopeful person, a courageous person, an expectant person, pretty soon you might start feeling more hope and more courage and more expectancy. But if you just stay on retreat or stay up on the mountain, waiting for the feelings, the right feelings to strike you before you leave, you may never leave. So what would you do today? Elijah, what would you do? Those of you in your living rooms, in your family rooms, what would you do? Would you pray bold prayers? Would you give generous gifts? Would you take the initiative to reach out in creative ways to friends old and new? Would you decide to learn a new skill? Would you commit to volunteering in some significant way? Would you cheer on a co-worker? Would you confess to a hidden sin or an addiction? Or speak to a trusted friend and ask God for healing? Whatever you do, it's much easier to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. You stop waiting to feel hope and you start acting in hope. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait.
Life is not an empty dream. Things are not what they seem. If you're not sure what to do, go have a nap and eat a snack. And we'll see you here next week.